Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Climate change. You don't have to travel to the North Pole or even Alaska to see its effects. In fact, you just have to observe what's going on in your backyard. Today, where we live, we check in with scientists and science writers about how plant and animal species are changing right here in New England. They're using historical records to analyze the biological impacts of climate change. What have you noticed where you live? Are your flowers blooming earlier? Are you noting, noticing insects or other animals earlier in the season? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me by, uh, from Boston at the Mix One Studios is Richard Premack. He's professor of biology at Boston University, author of Walden Warming, Climate Change Comes to Thoreau's Woods. Uh, hi, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lucy. It's great to be here. So can, can you take us back um, in terms of your research? When did you first start studying climate change and the impacts here in the Northeast? Well, I'd always been doing my field research in Southeast Asia on the island of Borneo. And then a dozen years ago, when I was working on a textbook of mine about the effects of climate change, I wondered why we were always looking for examples of climate change from faraway places, like, for example, northern Alaska or Canada or the mountains of, of Europe. I wondered why we couldn't see the effects of climate change right around here um, in southern New England. And so a dozen years ago with my students, we began looking for old historical records, which we could then compare to modern observations to see if there were any shifting patterns um, in plants and animals to detect the, the effects of climate change. And so I'm reading that Concord, Massachusetts became your primary focus of your research. How'd you settle on Concord? Well, we found there were lots of historical records in southern New England. This is an area where there's a tremendous concentration of universities and research institutes, a very long tradition of naturalists. But of all the records that we uncovered, and we uncovered many records from throughout the region, but the records from Concord were, were quite amazing because they were established in the 1850s by Henry David Thoreau. At that time, he was interested potentially in writing a book about about uh, the seasons and looking at changes in the seasons. So he began to make very detailed records of when plants were flowering, when trees were leafing out, when birds arriving in the spring, and many other natural history phenomenon. And as soon as we saw these records, uh, we knew that these would be quite amazing because they were not only very detailed and conducted over an eight-year period, but they were made by Henry David Thoreau, author of, the Wald, author of Walden, who is, is such a famous uh, environmental writer and philosopher. Can you talk about some of um, his observations and what, were, what you, you and your other fellow researchers are seeing here in New England? Well, we began making very detailed observations in 2004, and, and we were attempting to repeat as closely as possible the observations that Thoreau made in around Walden Pond and elsewhere in Concord from 1851 to 1858. And what we began to see very quickly was that plants in particular were flowering earlier than in Thoreau's time. So, for example, the highbush blueberry 
in Thoreau's time was always flowering in the middle of May, but we were seeing it flowering in early May, uh, sometimes in uh, late April, and then in one amazing year in 2010, we actually saw it flowering in the beginning of April, so a six-week shift in flowering time for this one particular species. So we see that the plants um, in Concord are responding to the warmer temperatures that we now have in the uh, Boston area and throughout southern New England, and that the plants are really responding to it by flowering earlier and by leafing out earlier. And what about the insects that we see coming out in spring? Well, unfortunately, Thoreau didn't make observations of of insects, Mm -hmm. but we have very extensive records of butterfly emergence times and records of bee flying in the spring. And what these records all show us is that bees and butterflies and probably other insects are also responding to temperature, and they're also matching very closely the uh, flowering time of plants and the leafing out time of plants. So both the insects and the plants are shifting quite dramatically earlier. And are we seeing the growing season extended? Because, um, you know, I remember this last winter, it was just so mild. And all of a sudden, and I know in Connecticut, we got this uh, this snowstorm in April, which kind of uh, dulled some of the early uh, the early flowers. But in terms of, of what we're seeing um, in the last few years, like at least since 2012, where we've had these very dry, uh, hot summers, uh, how does that impact um, our native crops? Well, it's it's a very complex story, but but the the simplest part of it is that with an earlier spring, with warming temperatures in the spring, that farmers and gardeners can start planting earlier. Plants start uh, flowering earlier, and then the, in the autumn, because we have milder temperatures and the first frosts occur much later, that often the extent the growing season ex- is extended in the autumn. So gardeners, home gardeners, can grow a lot of crops like lettuce, for example, later in the autumn than they ever had in the past. The summer times are much hotter. So, for example, this summer is a very hot summer and a very dry summer. And for gardeners who can irrigate, then they are in very good shape because with the hot, dry conditions, it's very good for certain crops, for example, like okra. And so if farmers can irrigate, then it's a very good situation. But on the other hand, if there's no irrigation possible, then uh, it's actually can be quite disastrous for crops because uh, the crops, the fields become much too hot for the plants to grow. So for example, in our garden, uh, the squash plants and the pumpkin plants are all wilting. No matter how much we water them, it's just too hot and dry for them. I've observed that in my home garden, but one thing that's really going strong are my tomato plants. They love the, they love the heat. That's right. So certain plants really like the heat, but of course you have to water them. If you don't yes. water them, then they'll quickly <laughs> wilt and die. The yeah. one interesting consequence this year is that we had a very early spring, and so a lot of our fruit trees like apples, pears, uh, peaches, cherries, they all started flowering very early. And then we had a series of, of frost events in early April where the temperature dropped down into the low 20s in the Boston area. And as a result of this uh, frost event, after the plants had already started leafing out and flowering, a lot of the flower buds and the young fruits on the fruit trees were completely killed. And so the fruit, tr- fruit crop in the southern New England area has been very heavily damaged um, in this area. So, for example, our peach tree produced huge numbers of peaches last year, and there's not a single peach on our peach tree this year. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking with Richard Premack. He's a professor of biology at Boston University, author of Walden Warming, Climate Change Comes to Thoreau's Woods. We're talking about how you can observe the impact of our planet warming in your backyard. You don't have to travel all the way to Borneo uh, to see the effects of climate change. Um, and I know, uh, Richard, that your book, uh, again, looked at historical records from Henry David Thoreau. Um, I was reading some of that research and with all of the wildflowers that he identified uh, back in the 18th hundreds. How many of those are still around from from the research you've been doing? Well, one very interesting consequence of our research on flowering time was that we noticed that there were a substantial number of the wildflowers that Thoreau had seen in Concord that we couldn't find. So uh, an important secondary goal of our research was to try to locate a lot of these missing wildflower species. And eventually we concluded that about a quarter of the wildflower species that Thoreau and other botanists had seen in Concord, we couldn't find. And for some groups, for example, like orchids, the loss was even more dramatic. So out of about 21 species of orchids that Thoreau and other botanists had seen growing in the wild in Concord, a uh, hundred years ago or 150 years ago, well, we were only able to find seven of them. So there's a, v- a dramatic loss of wildflower species for certain groups. And this is actually quite surprising because Concord, for those of you who know Concord, it, it seems like a very wild place. About 60% of Concord is undeveloped, and about 30% of it is uh, very strictly protected conservation land. And so even with all of those protections, uh, Concord is still losing a lot of its native wildflower species. And climate change is at least part of the reason why species are being lost. It's, it's just getting too hot for a lot of the species in Concord today. And what does that mean in terms of the invasives that are moving in? Well, that's right. So a lot of the uh, native species are dying out, and the place of those native species is being filled in by invasive species. So there's a lot of things changing in Concord, not only warmer temperatures, but deer populations, more um, Uh, disturbance by development and roads. Uh, We also have a lot of air pollution. So a lot of things are changing in Concord, and all of these things are tending to favor these invasive species. Some of them are are new invasive species that weren't really around very much before, like spotted knapweed. But some of them are invasive species which have been around for a long time, for example, like black swallowwort. And a lot of these species, which were fairly restricted in terms of where they were found before, so for example, often in very disturbed areas of cities, are now exploding in terms of their abundance in the countryside. So it's this combination of warmer temperatures, uh, more disturbance, and also a lot more air pollution, particularly a lot of excess nitrogen deposition onto the soil from air pollution, which is really favoring these invasive species. You mentioned the the deer population. Uh, when we think about deer, uh, we also think about ticks. And because of the the hot season, the very mild winters, um, that's impacting that as well? That's right. So that's a huge problem. So when I was growing up in New England, in the Boston area, I used to think that we had the most wonderful climate because there was really the, nothing that could hurt you um, in our forests or our fields. It was a very benign environment. It was a wonderful environment for children. But now, with these increasing deer populations, we also have uh, greater tick populations. And the ticks are also favored by the mild winters. So we don't have a really hard winter that can kill the ticks and really knock down their populations in the wintertime. So the tick populations are, are building. They're also building because we have increasing thickets of invasive species, which are great places for all the rodents to hide, which are another host for the tick. 
So this combination of rodents, invasive species, and deer are really all favoring higher tick populations, which in turn can spread Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. So now our forests, instead of being a very benign environment where nothing can hurt us, now we have to be careful all the time when we go in the woods that we wear long pants, we tuck our uh, pants into our socks, we use uh, insecticides on our pants, and we have to be very careful that we don't get attacked by the ticks. And that's a real downer when you want to hike in 90-degree heat, huh? <laughs> well, it's a real consideration. It, it means I don't let that prevent me from going in the woods, yep. but it means I'm just much more careful when I go into the woods. I'm always, again, always tucking my pants into my socks, and I'm always uh, looking at my body very carefully after I come in from the woods. And, you know, we were talking about uh, butterflies and bees um, earlier um, in the segment. Uh, what about, um, what are we seeing in terms of uh, the bird and birds and their migration uh, up here to, to New England? Well, that's a great question, Lucy. So Thoreau also made very careful observations about bird arrival times in the spring. And we have many other naturalists and birding clubs uh, which have also making observations about when the birds arrive in the spring. And these all show the same pattern, which is that the birds are responding to climate change in some cases, but to a much less degree than the, the plants and the insects. So a lot of bird species, particular thing, species like flycatchers and warblers, which are coming from Central and South America, they're not changing their arrival times time at all. But other species, for example, like catbirds, which are coming from the mid-Atlantic states or the southeast United States, are coming earlier now than in the past. Or hummingbirds, for example. We're seeing hummingbirds er uh, a little bit earlier, but not as much. they're not changing as much as the plants and the insects. And this actually has a lot of concerns for scientists because when the insects, when the birds come in the spring, they're feeding on insects, and there's a big pulse of insect emergence in the spring. And of course, the insects are feeding on the plants. And if the birds are not shifting their arrival time as much as the plants and the insects are responding to climate change, there's a danger that when the birds arrive and they need food for themselves and for their nestlings, that they're just not going to get enough food to eat, and this might be harming their populations. Is it possible that, um, you said that you're a native New Englander, do you worry that your backyard will one day be more like what we're seeing in uh, Virginia or North Carolina? Well, that's one thing which is going to happen. So for people who are children today, people who are very young today, that within their lifetimes, the, they will see the climate of New England gradually change from the way it was, from the way it is now, to more like New Jersey or Virginia or North, even North Carolina by the end of the century. Already the climate of southern New England has warmed enough that we're more like the climate of New York City or New Jersey was 20 or 30 years ago. So the climate has already changed, but it's going to keep changing. And what this means for the native flora and fauna is that a lot of our cold, loving species, uh, which are at the southern edge of their range already, are going to die out. So we're going to continue to lose species. And in the short term, a lot of those places where species are dying out are going to be taken over by the invasive species. And the hope is, is that by uh, sometime, by the end of the century or within a few hundred years, a lot of these southern species will gradually migrate into the southern New England region and start to fill in the gaps of our forests and fields and meadows.
We're talking to biologist Richard Premack about how historical records, specifically data Henry David Thoreau gathered in the 1800s, is now being used to track the effects of climate change on New England's animal and plant species. Are you a native New Englander? What have you noticed in your backyard? Are you a farmer who sees firsthand how the growing season is changing for native crops? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. After the break, we'll find out how climate change is impacting our marine life. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're talking about climate change and how global warming is impacting animals and plants in New England. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Richard Premack joins us from Mix One Studios in Boston. He's professor of biology at Boston University and author of Walden Warming, Climate Change Comes to Thoreau's Woods. Richard, I wanted to ask you, um, the the trends that we're seeing on land, um, are they also moving into our rivers, lakes, and oceans? Yes, that's that's certainly the case that our... That in the case, for example, of Walden Pond, it's melting earlier in the spring now than in Thoreau's time. A lot of the bodies of water are getting warmer. So we're seeing that as the air temperature rises, the the streams, uh, the rivers, the lakes are getting warmer. And this is having impacts for fish, fish populations. So, for example, trout like very cold water. And as the temperatures warm up, a lot of bodies of water which were suited for trout fishing, for example, are no longer going to be suited for that because the temperatures are getting too warm for them. Um, We're also seeing a lot of impacts uh, on the ocean. Uh, Maybe the next speaker will talk about that in more detail, but the ocean levels are rising um, throughout the New England coast. Based on historical records, we know that the ocean has already risen by eight inches and is predicted to increase in height by another one to three feet by the end of the century. And this will really have devastating consequences for New England unless we take measures to protect our coastline, because with that increase in height of one to three feet by the end of the century, many coastal areas of New England, like Providence or Boston, are going to be extremely vulnerable to storm damage when hurricanes hit the coast. That that will drive the water over the existing uh, sea walls and dams and cause massive flooding in, in low-lying areas. Areas, particularly areas that have been reclaimed in the past from coastal marshes. I want to bring into the conversation now Carl Zimmer, science writer and columnist for the New York Times. Carl, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We, we know that you've written about how climate change is causing our, our marine species to relocate. Um, tell us how um, we're seeing that impact here in southern New England. Well, um, you know, I live in uh, Connecticut, and uh, Connecticut used to have a very uh, thriving uh, uh, lobster fishery, and um, that's pretty much drying up now. Um, You you really don't see a lot of uh, lobster catch here, whereas in in Maine, things have been going pretty well. And what seems to be happening in part uh, is that the lobsters are uh, thriving further north because the temperature uh, is warming so that, uh, you know, the ocean here in Connecticut may be getting too warm for lobsters to thrive, whereas in Maine, it's kind of hitting their sweet spot. Um, That's fine for Maine right now, but unfortunately, the ocean is set to continue warming, and the more carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere, it will 
warm even more. So uh, that's just one of thousands of species that are being affected by uh, this massive heating of the ocean that we're carrying out right now. Now, earlier uh, in the hour, we were talking about how our backyards may soon look, uh, well, rather, in the future, look more like uh, Virginia, North Carolina. When we look at our species in the water, um, obviously the lobster population is dying out here in southern New England. But are we going to see more blue crabs, like what you see down in the Maryland area? So for a, a, for a lot of species, um, if you kind of draw their range on a map, um, that range is going to move uh, away from the poles. So, in the, I mean, I'm sorry, towards the poles, away from the equator. So, uh, species in the uh, North Atlantic are going to are going to a lot of them are going to move further north. Um, and so, scientists uh, in uh, 2013 they looked at uh, a whole bunch of different uh, species all at once uh, to try to kind of get a sense of the overall velocity of species in the ocean due to climate change, and they calculated that they're moving about four and a half miles away from the equator every year. Uh, and that's actually 10 times as fast as uh, what is being recorded on land. Um, there's a pretty simple reason for that. You know, the ocean is a big open place and, you know, you don't have to deal with a lot of mountains and deserts and so on. So uh, for a lot of species, they can just swim and track the, track the climate. Um, Unfortunately, what that also means is that, uh, you know, they're going to bump into a lot of other species, create kind of new ecological combinations, and not all species are going to be able to make that move. A lot, a lot of species are going to get trapped and get stuck in a climate that they're not suited for. I wanted to bring in the con- into the conversation now. Uh, Jesse is calling in from Old Lyme. Jesse, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm an avid kayak fisherman, and uh here in Long Island Sound and at the mouth of the Connecticut River. And, um, I mean, recently we're seeing lots of really interesting things, like a friend of mine just caught a redfish off one of the reefs out in, uh, right off the coast here, and, and that's very unusual. And then for the first time I think, in history, the juvenile Manhattan bunker just didn't leave. Um, we were seeing bluefish in some of like from our outflow at Millstone um, all winter long. Uh, we were just seeing bait fish that just never left. Um, seals were populating the mouth of the Connecticut River chasing uh, the bait fish, and as were the seagulls all winter. So just very, very interesting. And we're seeing uh, different things coming in earlier. We're already seeing snapper blues, which is typically an August fish. Uh, just the timing is really very interesting. So, you know, it's encouraged to uh, take logs of when you're touching these fish so year to year you can see the changes. And also, on behalf of the DEP, not that I'm speaking for them, but there is a, an angler survey volunteer program, being that there's only really six guys in the DEP office. I mean, it really is up to the anglers to really help keep tabs happening out there. And I encourage people to go to the ctdep.gov site to uh, get involved and, and become a part of the research that's happening. Well, thank you, Jesse, uh, for your call. And I wanted to go back to Richard Premack again, a, a bi- biologist joining us from Boston. Um, you know, he, Jesse was talking a lot about, you know, it's important for anglers to, to um, keep track of, of what they're seeing. You know, how often, um, how much is citizen science helping you in your research? 
Well, citizen science is, is an increasingly important tool for scientists to use because, as Jesse points out, there's only a relatively small number of government people tracking climate change, a relatively small number of scientists in comparison to size of the United States. And, and we there are now these citizen science networks being set up uh, throughout the United States by many groups of biologists, uh, other types of environmental scientists. And the help of, of Citizen volunteers, sometimes called citizen scientists, is really necessary to establish a very detailed network to see the effects of climate change. One one of the most successful of these uh, over the last few decades has been the uh, Journey North, which tracks the movement of monarch butterflies from Mexico uh, through the United States to Canada. And this allows very, very detailed uh, information to be available to scientists about how many monarch butterflies there are and exactly how far north they are migrating. And another very successful one is eBird, which pe- in which people can contribute observations of when they see birds uh, throughout the year. Another one is um, the National Phenology Network and Project Budburst, which uh, is very strong in plant-based observations. So these are all ways in which people can contribute observations, which then scientists can use to track the effects of climate change. I wanted to go back to Carl Zimmer, a science writer and columnist for the New York Times. Um, I'm sure you were able to hear the listener calling in who's a fisherman has seen a fish he's never seen before um, in Long Island Sound. Um, is this common um, all along uh, the coast? Well, you know, every now and then, you know, people may see something uh, unusual and, you know, one observation at a time, uh, you know, could be explained by a lot of different things. You know, we climate is sort of a noisy thing, and from one year to the next, uh, you can have cold years and, and warm years. But um, the, the really important thing is when those observations start to follow a trend over many years. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, uh, what that uh, caller was, was noting of starting to see fish that you'd expect further south or maybe not see until later in the year, uh, seeing them pop up in the usual times, or unusual places, that's becoming more and more common. And so that species, uh, you know, that we might be more familiar with down in New Jersey, we're starting to see them more up here. And that trend, just based on the climate models and ecological models, is going to continue. I wanted to bring up a producer here at the station mentioned that in 2009, a manatee came up north, uh, all the way up to the Cape Cod, Ilya. Uh, Do you remember that incident? Uh, yeah, I, you know, and, and this, the, I think this is, you know, one of the cases where, you know, you've got sort of noise in the system. I mean, you okay. may, it just takes one manatee kind of going off course to make everyone look at it and say, oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we get dolphins and whales showing up in unusual places. I mean, it, that that's just part of the system. But you lay on top of that uh, a trend where year in and year out you're starting to see more and more sightings of species in the ocean in certain uh, latitudes that you weren't expecting, then you see, start to see the, the fingerprint of climate change. Can we talk yes, about... Uh, uh, yes, go ahead, could, I, could I just add into that? Another interesting example is that we had uh, killer whales showing up off Cape Cod this year, uh, which are actually coming from the north. So that's a species which is, should be further north but is coming south. 
But again, um, it's it's really these long-term trends that are important. And uh, in the case of Concord, we've been following flowering time for 12 years. And any one year, you could explain away as being kind of an unusual year. But we really have 12 years of records at this point from Concord. And they all show, you know, just very clearly that plants are flowering much earlier now than in the past. So it's, it's really these uh, uh, records carried out over many years, which are the most effective for scientific purposes. And, and Carl, I wanted to go back to you. Um, you were hearing again about these fish that are moving uh, further north. What about species moving out from the tropics and how that impacts food security for native populations? So that is one of the really big concerns about how climate change is going to affect the, uh, the oceans. Um, uh, as, as species move away from the equator, what the, there aren't going to be a whole bunch of fish that somehow are really well adapted to incredibly hot waters. Um, uh, they, they just aren't there. And so uh, when scientists uh, look at the species we have today and basically try to project where they're going to be in 100 years, they find that the tropics are going to lose a substantial amount of their marine diversity. They're going to lose a lot of species of fish and other marine species. And, you know, we, we as a species, we depend on the ocean a lot. We, we get a lot of our protein from fish and, and other animals in, in the ocean. And so if uh, they suddenly disappear from the tropics, where a whole, an especially large number of people depend on, on the ocean for their food, that could be uh, incredibly uh, dangerous for us. I want to take a call now from a listener. Uh, Bill from Windsor Locks, you're on Where We Live. Hi, how you doing? I'm well. I got a large track of woodlands, and I've noticed that the invasives are getting worse. Mainly that Japanese knotweed. It's you just can't control it. You got any ideas of how you can uh, get rid of it? Uh, I mean, we've done uh, mowing. Mowing seems to be, but you got to do it like every three weeks. It just comes back real tough. But I've also noticed that it seems to be spreading. I mean, the uh, poison ivy you can mechanically take down because it doesn't grow as fast, and the and the bittersweet and all that stuff, but it's getting up into the canopies. But then the Japanese knotweed along the banks of the river and so on and so forth is definitely getting bigger. Any advice? I'll take my answer off the air. All right. Thank you, Bill, for your call. I want to go back to uh, biologist Richard Premack. Um, he's asking for what do we do when we see all these invasives coming in and choking uh, the native plants? Well, I mean, the, the most important thing you can do with invasive plants is to make sure they don't get there in the first place. So people have to know the invasive plants and to remove them when they first see them. That's the that's the most effective time to prevent invasive species from getting established in the first place is get, learn to recognize them and remove them when they first appear. But once they've established themselves, uh, there's really two choices. One is to remove them physically, pull them out, dig them up, and the other is to uh, release uh, insects or other species, which are biocontrol agents. So, for example, purple loosestrife, which was a terrible pest um, in a lot of our wetlands in southern New England, um, is now being controlled in many places through the release of a beetle, which is very specific to purple loosestrife and which will uh, dramatically reduce its populations. So, the, these are the really the best measures. But the other thing is to really prevent species from from getting established in the first place. And one of the main contributors to the uh, spread of invasive species are people growing ornamental plants um, in their gardens. And if at all possible, people should try to plant native species in their gardens and really take care that they don't contribute to the spread of these invasive species. 
And one way to do that is not to buy plants from all those big box stores. I want to take another call. Uh, Kathy from West Hartford, you're on Where We Live. Hello there. Thank you for taking my call. I think that citizen science is the best way to um, start to recognize some of the changes in our environment. I'm a science educator, and I advocate for people to put up a bird feeder. And I've been tracking two different species of birds um, to see when they, their migration patterns have occurred. I'm looking at the little juncos in the, for the winter and the red-winged blackbirds in the summer. And so um, that might be a suggestion um, to really start to promote uh, citizen science because I think that people, people who are taking down some data can really contribute to the field of science. And Kathy, and that's just my comment. And Kathy, before you, you go off the phone, can you just tell us what you have been observing in, in your garden? You said you're tracking certain birds. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the red-winged blackbird, for instance? Well, actually, for the last five years, every single year they've come on the same day. So that's really interesting to me. However, my friend is in um, Martha's Vineyard, and he tracks hummingbirds. And he noticed that this year the hummingbirds came two weeks later, which was really surprising but it could be contributing to the El Nino effect. And we're not sure, but he tracks hummingbirds out in Martha's Vineyard. So we've got a couple of my friends who have been tracking um, different species of birds. Um, And like I said, the juncos also, the little black juncos who come usually in the winter, they've been coming the exact same day. So I guess nobody has told them about climate change yet. And maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> All right, Kathy, thank you so much for your call. Again, uh, citizen scientists who are making observations uh, um, in their, their backyards. Um, I didn't want to end the segment without talking again specifically about uh, flooding and you know the threat to our coastline. Um, can we talk a little bit more, Carl Zimmer, about you know what we're seeing uh, along uh, the Northeast? Yeah, so basically the, the ocean is, is rising, and so what that means is that if you have uh, storms that are going to be pushing water, water uh, onto the coast, um, it's going to be able to get further in. And if you combine with that, um, you know, the fact that we are essentially kind of putting more energy into the atmosphere ocean system, we're kind of charging it up for uh, potentially in some places uh, causing more storms. Um, and so when you've got that combination, you can expect that uh, we're going to be dealing with, with more flooding than uh, we were accustomed to. Um, you know, I live, I live al- along the Long Island Sound, um, and there are streets that, you know, 15 years ago uh, would never be closed off from flooding. And now you just get used to it a lot of, you know, during a lot of the summer, you just, you just know you probably shouldn't drive on that road because it's flooded out. Um, Unfortunately, that may be, we may have more and more of that in our future. I want to thank Carl Zimmer, science writer and columnist for the New York Times, for joining us. We appreciate your time, Carl. Thank you. Um, we're going to uh, stick with uh, Richard Premack uh, and as we go into break, and we're going to find out about how um, there are organizations that are looking to conserve land to help in the fight against climate change. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, join us as we explore the grounds of Philip Johnson's Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut. It's been 10 years since the site opened to the public. We learn about its history and find out what lies ahead for this treasured landmark. Today we're talking about climate change and how it's impacting the plant and animal species found in Connecticut and the rest of New England. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Um, Richard Premack is joining us from Boston at Mix One Studios. He's professor of biology at Boston University, author of Walden Warming, Climate Change Comes to Thoreau's Woods. And joining us now by phone is Abigail Weinberg, director of conservation research at the Open Space Institute. Hi, Abby. You're on where we live. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you talk about the mission of this uh, resilient landscapes initiative um, that you have? When did it start? Well, we, um, we're really picking up right where our first speaker left off and asking this question about how do we ensure uh, there are places for species to migrate. And we um, started to really think about this issue and realize it wasn't getting addressed uh, by our conservation community in about 2012 and started a partnership with uh, the Nature Conservancy and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation to address that. So a resilient landscape, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question, and um, what we're talking about here is places where species are going to be able to migrate, and so as we see all these shifts happening uh, to specific species, where are they going to be able to land? How can we increase the likelihood that they will adapt and survive as the climate changes? Um, so when, what we found and uh, what science is pointing to is that our protected lands, that the base of state parks, federal parks, town parks that we have in Connecticut across the Northeast, those are the places that are most likely to provide refugia. And so when we look at what we've already protected today, what we find is we've done a great job at protecting these high elevation acidic rock types like granite. Uh, think of the White Mountains in, um, in, uh, in New Hampshire. And what we haven't done is protected the low elevation, really fertile landscapes that humans like as well, like our silt valleys and our limestone soils. And those places are actually preferred by a lot of species, too. So our protected lands right now are set up to only protect about a third of the species um, that, that will need to adjust in climate change. So one of the just very basic pieces of resilience here that we're talking about is ensuring we have protection, we rebalance our conservation lands to focus on these low-elevation, fertile places. As I mentioned, uh, Richard Premack is also with us, a biologist from the Boston University. Richard, how um, vital are these, uh, these uh, uh, tracts of, of land that are being conserved to, to try to keep these species around? Well, I think they're, they're absolutely critical because, as uh, uh, an earlier speaker mentioned, there are a lot of barriers to migration, and the more... Uh, we can fill in the gaps between existing protected areas uh, with these new conservation areas. I think that will be great. I think it's also an example of how we need not just to observe the effects of climate change, but also to take action. So uh, Abigail's group is actually uh, being very proactive, taking some action outside of the government to uh, ensure that species have a place to survive. But we also need to be lobbying the government because the government is really the, the major determinant of protected areas in the United States. So we also, as citizens, we need to be telling our elected representatives and also joining political organizations ourselves and urging the government to take action to deal with this problem of climate change. 
I'm glad you brought that up, uh, government, uh, Richard, because Abigail, I was wondering, you know, how does zoning and, and ordinances factor in um, when you try to conserve these, uh, these parcels of land? Well, what we've done is if we, we've identified seven focus areas across the eastern U.S. and three of them in New England, and we've identified these low-elevation fertile places where we have $11 million to spend uh, in order to direct land protection into those places. That's our carrot to get conservation to, um, to really occur there. We're on track to conserve about 37,000 acres right now. So we are able to make progress. That's, we can't do that without the government agencies putting in money as well. And so that money attracts other federal money, and that's really critical. But the thing about these places, these low elevation fertile places, is that they are places filled with people. This is where our farming occurs. This is where our human habitation occurs. So these are small parcels. The zoning is often um, very fragmented, uh, you know, a higher density zoning than up in the mountains where it's much easier to protect land. Land use planning is going to be critical really to the success of these efforts. It really can't occur unless we're partnering with the farmers, um, as we were discussing earlier, and with um, the towns that are working in these places and, the, and with the people that live in these places. Overall, are you seeing that partnership occur, or is there you know, some opposition? That's a great question, and I think that it really varies across uh, the eastern U.S., but I think, you know, because of all the observations that are, are, we were talking about on the show, it's more and more undeniable that climate change is occurring. Now, some people may be uncomfortable with the reasons for that, and there's an important sort of, you know, care in how we communicate about making these changes to the way we, we live. Um, but I think that overall, people recognize there's a need. And the thing is, is that the things that the species need are very similar to what humans need to protect them from climate change. So when we talk about protecting silt valleys that are around rivers, that is the same thing that will be needed to protect people from floods like Irene and Sandy. So there's a huge intersection and a, and a, um, a, a, a really symbiosis to protecting what's needed for species migration and for humans to survive and uh, as the climate changes. I want to take a call now. Karen is calling from Chester. Hi, Karen. You're on Where We Live. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was listening to what you were saying about the uh, decline of the fish population in the tropics, and I'm very concerned about the sea mammals that eat fish and what is going to happen to them. Can you lend some insight on what their situation might be? Oh, I think that's a good question. Um, Carl Zimmer, who was with us in the, in the B segment, um, he's no longer with us. I know he's written a lot about um, what's happening in our, our, with our marine life. I don't know if either one of our guests uh, has any um, knowledge they could share about that question, about what's going on with whales. Well, I think I could talk about that. I think that the, uh, the situation with sea mammals is actually very desperate in many places because, again, people are increasingly altering uh, the fishing stocks throughout the world. So as we over-harvest fish throughout the world and, and other uh, animals in the ocean, then there's often less food for sea mammals like whales to eat. Um, and an ex example of that is we're increasingly harvesting krill from the uh, southern oceans uh, for use as, as fish food 
in 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 fish farms. And as we overharvest this krill, there's less krill for the fish to eat, and there's less less krill for the whales to eat. So I think that we're also having these consequences uh, to many mammals throughout the world. Um, I wanted to read a, a tweet that we're getting from a listener um, who says that he's definitely, Michael says he definitely sees the effects of invasive species. He notices his hemlock trees withering now and weeds like mimosa trees are growing. Abigail, I wanted to turn back to you in terms of, again, these um, these parcels of land that are being conserved around the Northeast, including in New England. You know, How are you able to keep these invasives out? It's a great question, and I was um, glad to hear this come up earlier. And I think one of the approaches that's a little bit different uh, that, that we're taking based on some of the science that's coming out is that um, there's going to be a, uh, a question of change versus degradation. So we, what we want to prevent is degradation of our lands, and we want to make sure they're healthy and can regenerate and can support ecological processes like food webs and these kind of things. But what we have to recognize is that only a certain amount of intervention is really cost-effective and, and really going to work. So we could continue, as the um, earlier caller talked about, you know, mowing our, our knotweed every three weeks. But that's going to, at some point, exhaust us completely. And we need to recognize that these new species are going to be part of our um, communities, and communities are completely reshaping. So it may take a hundred years uh, for these communities to reform and for some of the uh, dominance of these invasives um, to balance. But we have to, at some point, admit that uh, the change is going to occur. And so, how do we make these decisions about what you know, what change we allow, and where degradation is really the issue, and how do we address that as effectively as possible with the fewest interventions? So there's really a balance, and there's a lot of allowing that's going to be necessary to um, an and adjustment to the new communities that, that are forming. Um, Abby, we're talking to you um, in Connecticut. We've been in this heat wave about 16 days now where we're looking at uh, temperatures in, in the 90s. I'm just curious what you're seeing in the, the forests um, as this drought um, seems to be a, a – it keeps happening every summer. Yeah. Well, what we're, t- what we're seeing is that um, we're dealing with a whole set of stressors. And so invasive plants are a stressor on the natural system, on the native species. Uh, the high temperatures and the lack of uh, resources, including water, uh, are ma- massive stressors on our system. Development are, you know, in- encroaching development onto these protected lands. Those are additional stressors. So all of this really is is um, compacting to make for a system that is less resilient, that where we have less of these areas that are really functioning with their full um, have their ecological processes intact and, and can um, offer all the natural benefits that the protected lands do. So what we need to do here is really focus on places that are that do remain intact, those places with less stressors where there are bigger areas of undeveloped, unfragmented places, um, and find those places in with all those diversity of geologies, elevations that will support our species. It's not an easy task, and it, it does require regional thinking. We can't do this just locally, though every place has its role to play. So it's a, it's a huge challenge and a regional one. 
Uh, Richard, um, you said earlier that um, you know every day people need to do um, a good job lobbying uh, government to help um, in terms of what we're seeing in, on climate change impacting our region. Um, what else can everyday citizens do to preserve these native plant and animal species? Well, I think that, that people have to take responsibility in terms of protecting the landscapes around where they live. That uh, uh, I think that people have to get out and really know the nature around them. They have to go out for walks. They have to learn the species of plants and animals. And then they have to be uh, vigilant at, at making sure these areas are not developed, making sure they're not degraded by human activities or degraded by um, invasive species. So these are all a part of responsibility of, of taking care of the environment. Uh, but again, it's, you know, we have to be forceful in terms of lobbying the government as well. Um, I'd just like to actually add one thing, which I, I think is a very important topic, which uh, maybe Abigail would like to talk about as well, which is that a lot of these uh, uh, forests and, and ecosystems are changing because of a warming climate. And uh, as species die out in them, which are native species, we need to think about potentially bringing species from further south, from places like New Jersey or Virginia or North Carolina, and then experimentally planting them in our forests to see if they will survive, to see if we can facilitate this process of, of ecosystem change. Uh, this is something that, that scientists call assisted migration, and it's something which is being very actively debated within the scientific community right now. The scientists haven't come to any agreement on this, but at least it, it's something that we should start thinking about doing experimentally to see whether we can facilitate this process of, of adaptation to climate change. And Abby, we have just under a minute if you want to talk a little bit about this assisted migration. Well, I can say that there are um, the national parks, uh, national forest system actually has a series of adaptation plans that they've set up, and they're, a lot of them are doing just that um, and trying this out. They're planting tree species from the south, and the trick is is that they can't get them from their local nurseries and these kinds of things. But it, it, it's absolutely true that you know that is the wave that I'm seeing certainly in uh, land management. I want to thank Abigail Weinberg, Director of Conservation, Conservation Research at the Open Space Institute. We'll have links on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, to find out more. Also, thank you so much, Richard Premack, Professor of Biology at Boston University and author of Walden Warming, Climate Change Comes to Thoreau's Woods. He joined us today from Mix One Studios in Boston. Thanks again, Richard. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to Mark Hers for his help on today's program. Again, you can continue our conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.